Welcome to Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau. Join us today as we hear from Mr. Ted McKinney, former Undersecretary for Trade at USDA and the current newly named CEO of the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture. We hope you enjoy hearing from Mr. McKinney on his outlook related to trade, supply chain issues, and global agriculture. Before we step ahead and really forecast out, Ted, I'd like to take a minute and step back. Um, you were at USDA in a, in a very pivotal time when you think about trade. And I'm just curious, or I would love for you to reflect back on, on your experience and heading up all things trade for, for the US Department of Agriculture, your experience overseas, and, and maybe just comment on your takeaways in, in the views of American agriculture and where we stand. Oh, wow, that's a great question. I don't think I've had that before. Well, I have a few distinct thoughts. Um, I think the first thing that worked very well was the fact that I was fortunate to have known my counterpart of sorts at USTR. Greg Dowd and I had known each other, and we sat down and really made a pact that we were going to be very honest and supportive of each other. And we were. I mean, we gave each other a couple of corrective interviews, and we were also very complimentary. And that made that partnership work much better because there are some natural inherent competitions there. They are charged with doing new and revised trade agreements. And sometimes that makes them believe they've got all trade. No, they, they don't. We have at USDA, we had a lot in the middle there, but we always were able to work it out. So I would say that's the first thing. The second thing is if anybody ever wondered whether uh, trade is free and fair around the world, uh, or inherently free and fair, the answer is absolutely not. It's a dog-eat-dog, junkyard-dog world out there. And, and I hate to say this, but strength is important. Now, you can have strength and be fair, and we always, always pursued fairness. Even when we were going to sell a country more than we might be buying from them in food and ag products, we tried to work with commerce. And heck, I even talked to the Pentagon once about some things that a country wanted because we wanted to be seen as fair, recognizing the size, the clout, the superpower, and sometimes the pot shots that can come at a country like ours. So we worked hard. I would say that a third point is there was a lot of straightening out to do. Uh, part of it was because the WTO had not been working well. Clearly, Mr. Lighthizer's working uh, set the stage to redo that. Uh, there were countries that were thumbing their nose at fair trade with us and with others. And so it was not always easy, but I found that if you can apply the principles you learn in groups like 4-H and FFA, church, the golden rule, Blake, the things we learned and, and, the, and the respect we showed for each other at USDA, you can get things done, but it was not easy because um, you have, there was some straightening out to do, and that's not easy to do. So the reminder there to me is that you're always better in keeping up with changes and being honest with changes and giving corrections and being corrected over time, because if it's let go, it's like uh, it's like a child that uh, has never had a discipline. You you then are faced with a major major problem. So in that sense, it wasn't easy, but boy, I have no regrets. 
I'm so thankful for growing up on a farm because, you know, what got me up in the morning was thinking that maybe, just maybe, if we could sell another container of pork or beef or poultry or another bale of cotton, you know, another ton or two of corn or soy, somebody was going to have a little bit more for maybe a vacation, a kid's college education, the ability to bring a son, a daughter, a niece, a nephew back. And so in that sense, it was, uh, it was something that drove us. I probably can't finish this conversation out without talking about China phase one. <laughs> At the time, I mean, none, none of us liked the tariffs that were placed on some of our partners. Now, China probably had earned the right to have a couple of tariffs and they got that. The others were a little bit more uh, confusing at times. But taking China, I have to say that notwithstanding how pleased I am that maybe we're gonna be talking about getting rid of tariffs, um, you, you can't just go grovel to China and then expect good deeds. They are out there to, to try to displace us as the leader of the world, not the free world, leader of the world. And so, uh, and so things like tariffs had to be in place to facilitate change in attitude so that you could then get to some resolution. And when I think of, uh, well, I was on a conference with, uh, with, with uh, Greg Dowd the other day. When, uh, when we started those discussions, we had, um, let me just look here, 150, I believe, plants, pork, beef, poultry, dairy, uh, animal protein plants open that could export to China. And that number was going down uh, every month. When we finished, we had opened up and we had 735 plants exported. Wow. So though there were those tariffs and the counter tariffs, when I think of the, of the processing plants that opened up to China, when we added the biotechnology traits, the one I'm familiar with in this duo, uh, is up in that 40, 50, 60% market share and is a benefit to farmers, the return uh, exceeded the pain and it had to happen to facilitate action. And so you learn how to negotiate. You learn how to be true to your, your ideals of fairness, even when maybe others aren't being as fair. So those are some top line takeaways. I guess I was always guided by Secretary Purdue, who was always so very even handed and expected the same from all of us. Blake can attest to that. So uh, those would be a few uh, top of mind uh, responses to that good question. Well, what are you most proud of then in terms of accomplishments during your years of service with your team? Mm. Well, some might think phase one. For me, it's 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 going into and out of a, a uh, an occasional cesspool, not USDA, but a, a cesspool of politics, and walking out with reasonable credibility and 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 friends. And I think we did that. So on a personal level, because you know you you only have your reputation and your credibility and your trust once, and you don't ever want to lose it. So I think we retained that. I would have to say, though, that I think we, we were successful in moving forward on a diversification strategy in U.S. exports. By that, I mean, um, after we had seen China's behavior and the risk of what they could do in a single decision, soybeans was the best example. You in Missouri raise a lot of soybeans. I know yep. that. I've seen many. Right. Um, to diversify. Now, let's be real. No four or five or six countries of Southeast Asia can match the, 
the demand that a single country of China can demand. But if you can work on that, you hedge your bet like a 401k did. And I look now and see what Vietnam is purchasing, Thailand is purchasing, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, small country, but an important country. And the list goes on. Uh, we've retained a great relationship with the Western Hemisphere at a time, and we were really starting to make headway in Africa when the election came. And I think that long term, if we can sustain that, we improve a farmer and a rancher's lot by not having quite the open risk, the size and magnitude of risk, as when we have largely one country that's buying 60, 70 percent of a single commodity item. So I would say that's another one. There may be others I'll think of, but those come to mind. Well, I appreciate when you hearken back to your FFA and 4-H days and when you talk about the goal of just trying to sell more. I've always found trade is a hard issue to talk about with our fellow farmers and ranchers, right? Because it seems like until a market is lost and you feel it in the pocketbook, it's hard to it's just it, it's it's just so hard to quantify sometimes so as you travel around and obviously you know during your time in the state in indiana and in the private sector you've had lots of conversations with our fellow farmers how do you best help explain the importance of of trade sure well you start with the real fundamentals we're producing a whole lot more than we're going to consume in this or any three countries take usmca so we better better be focused. The next thing, because it's usually a larger commodity item, uh, is I remind them that those who are working on behalf of checkoffs, good ones in your world would be the American Soybean Association and its export arm, the U.S. Soybean Export Council. Um, Grains Council would be for corn, uh, you know, Cotton Incorporated, Cotton Council, all of those. Man, those people are good. U.S. Meat Export Federation. Golly, I, I saw firsthand the good they did on behalf of a farmer who, by the way, is contributing some of what might have been income to promote that. And, and I've got to say, I am an enormous, I was always a, a big checkoff fan. Our family supported that in a major way on our farm in Indiana. But I saw firsthand the benefits and they are enormous. And so I remind them that they're contributing with their own largesse, their own piece of a, you know, a wagon or a truckload of corn, soybeans, or other products. And so I remind them of that. The last thing I remind them, though, is that um, trade has to be fair. And that's not easy because it's usually us getting screwed because there's a view of a, being a wealthy country, a rich country, never mind what's fair is fair, and then we try to hard, hard to, to work on, on each other's behalf. And so remind them that to straighten out trade is never easy. You can't just go grovel on somebody's uh, doorstep and, and, and beg them and grovel that to them that, that, that they fix this. No, they, they are fixing their ways and you gotta kind of force their hand in that. And that's why I think some of the tactics that we use mostly of, of pulling back on generalized system of preference or tax credit dollars uh, um, was very effective. It was a way of saying, look, we love you. We're giving these tax credits. But we're going to take them away if we're not playing fair. And things like that help a lot. I think some undone things that I wish we could have done was worked harder on Europe. That's why I'm complimentary of Secretary Vilsack for investing the time 
providing an alternative to the European model of, of no caution, we will not take risk, uh, we don't believe in risk, and they've lost a lot from not accepting biotechnology and the like. So I think uh, to see the current administration standing firm, politely and respectfully, but standing firm and saying, we, we can't go that way and we're gonna provide an alternative for the world to, uh, to follow. Those are some of the things that I think are fairly critical that we've gotta stay very focused on. And there's some threats that are emerging more and more too. Well, so you mentioned biotech and I'm glad you did because the work that was done uh, in partnership with USTR through USMCA, I mean, it was, it was huge in terms of the terms of agreement for biotech. So can you comment on that? Because I mean, really it's the gold standard, right? In terms of what we hope to incorporate into other trade talks. Yes. Well, I probably should step back just a, a little bit by saying that I too was worried uh, that that we were just going to blow up U.S. or uh, NAFTA without having a replacement. And so I think I think that's where USDA, a lot of us, I was a part of that. I'm sure Secretary Purdue was a part of that. Certainly USDR helped the president understand, hey, the goal is right. The tactics, let's just don't blow it up. Let's keep it and replace it. And I remember a lot of nervousness. I was among them. But I think it shows that when you're earnest in your dealings, when you're honest in your dealings, when you're direct, when you've got to straighten out issues, you can be successful And USMCA is a great example. Now you brought up the biotech section. It is still to this day, the only agreement on earth that I know of that has a chapter or a segment that defines the rules of the road on new technologies, notably biotech. And it is a template that we're following right now, right now, as this administration deals with President AMLO and his uh, views on biotechnology in, in, in Mexico. And boy, I hope we can cut and paste that into other agreements that I hope we can get going on very quickly. Uh, we'll need to change it. We now have gene editing on the cusp. We still have a long way to go on animal biotechnology. Wow. Okay. That's, yes, another, yes. that's another podcast that's, some other day. That, but, uh, that is um, another podcast. But I think I think of in Madison, Wisconsin, we have PERS resistant pigs. Think of the value to those farmers that lost so many swine with the PERS virus. Yes. Africa swine fever is on the doorstep down in the Dominican Republic. What if it comes? We have to have every tool in the toolbox and the guidelines that were in USMCA on biotech, the points you referenced, if applied to African swine fever, gene editing, certainly biotech crops, biotech animals, I think could be a roadmap for the world for many years to come. And I'm very excited that maybe we can get, continue to make progress there. So since you have mentioned African swine fever, let, let's in your new role uh, with NASDA and, and thinking about our teams that are essentially on the front lines, right, within the states that are working to, to help our safeguard the food supply. You know, what are your priorities now, you know, as the new CEO of NASDA? Obviously, uh, animal health, food safety are always paramount within the regulatory environment, but what else are on your mind that you're hearing from your colleagues? Well, the first thing that, that I did and had affirmed is that NASDAQ's board, my predecessor, Barb Glenn, and the staff 
really did an outstanding job on the strategic plan that's not that old. I've read it, read it again, and read it again, and I find it sound. It would have been a plan I would have wanted to write. So the first thing is do no harm with your current work and the trajectory, which is a positive one for NASDAQ. Do that right, and that begets you the opportunity to do more. So we're going to do that. The policies in that are many that you mentioned. Um, certainly climate change, which is very broad, has many aspects. I include waters of the U.S. underneath that. We've got to make sure that lands right. And the, the good news is that NASDA members, both parties, the democratically elected or appointed commissioners, directors, and secretaries, and the same Republican, are very, very aligned on that. And okay. that carries a lot of weight when the administration, the federal administration looks and says, hey, they seem to have this figured out. Uh, we better pay attention. And there is some of that. So climate change is one. Uh, infrastructure is one. And if the, the $1.2 trillion bill can advance, NASDA's board has endorsed that. And well, they should. I would have endorsed that as well. And that happened before my watch, but good for them. Um, um, worker shortages. There's many ways to describe that, but we're continuing to work, as has been done for many, many years prior here, to find that way to get guest workers in who want to come in and do work on farms and not get it caught up in the uh, free pathway, uh, automatically made citizen, all that stuff that doesn't really need to be there. We can bring guest workers in for agriculture and probably some other areas of work and not yet have to worry about uh, a path to citizenship, whatever form that takes. And so that is in, uh, that is in the mix. Uh, there are some pieces of the federal funding package. Research and education is always very important to borrow, but I think it is to our members. You know, you look at the concentration of R&D going into large companies. Now, I came from that world, and I think they were guided properly. I think they were ethical. But left alone are a lot of things that may not quite be in a profit motive for a large corporation. So our universities and all the great work that they're doing, the discoveries that they can do, mm -hmm. if uh, unleashed with some funding, um, I think there's also some importance of replacing old equipment, old facilities, old buildings that are antiquated, uh, I think has been a part of the mix as well. So those would be the ones that are at the core. Now, the new ones we're looking at are really exciting. Um, not because I was in trade, because I believe this when I was in Chris Chen's role in Indiana, is there's a belief that uh, we have got to to look more at, at international trade as states. When you think about it, many, even most of our states are much larger than many countries, both geographic and in GDP. Yeah. And, and, and I know how hard I was working. I traveled 490,000 international air miles before COVID shut us down and I would have loved to have had some help. Now, I didn't want people displacing our point of view because I think we had the right point of view. But if we can leverage the states to be an echo chamber, another megaphone, and align with our federal government, I think it helps us. And we already have very strong signs that the UK would like to do more with NASDA, with FAS and USDA, of course, but with NASDA. 
my good friends in Costa Rica, IECA is where a lot of the Central American and South American countries migrate to for a lot of policy work, at least their international policy work. I think they're ready to do a, an MOU on how we work together and advance this. And we really saw this need in the interim before I took this job when I was working so much on the UN Food Systems Summit. Europe is out there trying to purvey an, a very incorrect philosophy. Uh, you know, it's cut the pesticide arsenal in half, reduce, forced reduce uh, fertilizer use by a quarter, completely eliminate antibiotic use in animals and really draconian things that are not going to feed a hungry world by 2050. These are things that the states, including yours, including yep. yours, can and I think would have an interest in playing in as long as it's harmonious with our federal government. And I think there's a there there. And I'm very excited about it. Well, I remember during my time at the State Department of Ag, you certainly were. Your team was always so welcoming, encouraging states to participate in the missions that, that you and others were leading. And certainly that's appreciated. And, you know, we had the chance to welcome some groups to the state through reverse trade missions as well. Yes, yes. Well, I tell you, I encourage you and your colleagues who might be listening to get after it because the Foreign Ag Service has not been able to spend very much of their money because of COVID, because they're international. So much of it is travel. And uh, they are welcoming states. Uh, I think you work through Chris and yep. the, the Mid Food Export Midwest is the group that you know so well. And I think there's opportunities that people, if they really get creative, I bet FAS would say, let's try new things because it's a new day post-COVID. So uh, I would encourage the mid and small size companies in your state to really think hard about that because there's opportunity. Okay. So, all right. So you, you say post-COVID. So, so let's talk a little bit about supply chain uh, because that is the, that is the topic when I travel around the state and, and, and you know, it's, it, it, as people ask about how are farmers feeling right now? And, and, and honestly, Ted, all I can say is, okay. We're okay. You know, commodity prices are good. People feel good about, at least here in Missouri, about their harvests, but we're just okay because everyone is thinking ahead to 2022 and, and knowing the supply chain disruptions that we continue to experience, the concern about fertilizer, herbicides, continuing to build on what we saw this past year with in terms of herbicide availability. So it just, and, and of course you have to throw in labor. So, so what are your thoughts? What are you, what are you all talking about as you think about supply chain and how do we ever get out of this? Well, I, I, I wish I could say that there's a fix tomorrow, but I think we're in this for a little while. I think as we go through 2022, and I don't think it's the first or second quarter that we start to see a lot of relief. I hope that's the case. I think it's more in the latter part of 2022 before a lot of this gets straightened out. To be sure, COVID did disrupt a lot of this. It, it, can, it can probably get the majority of this blame, but I don't think it's all of the blame. For example, um, what's, what's with this business of cargo, uh, you know, uh, uh, containers getting unloaded in the port in Long Beach, and then hightailing it straight back to China empty. I, I, I don't understand that. I, I think I know what's behind it. I think China has figured out that it's their advantage to pay the extra cost to get them back and reship. Well, we, we need to deal with that. 
that is not probably in most of our views fair trade. Uh, it, it services only one country or one region. So things like that are another vector that comes into this. Um, for better or worse, I'm not making a political judgment, but, but all the swirling policies that are being tossed about in infrastructure bill and in the uh, social spending bill, whether it's a trillion and a half or three or five, leaves uncertainty. And, and agriculture needs certainty to make decisions that are more long-term. So I think there's gonna have to be a settling uh, uh, of this, a bill passed or a bill killed or a bill modified or China getting, uh, you know, getting a corrective interview on their, their, their use of bringing empty containers back. I think it's gonna take a while. I also believe that there's been a lot of understanding and improvement in the whole interagency area. This is not just a USDA problem, a USTR, it's an all of government problem. And, um, and then finally, I think there's some things that the ports themselves can do. I've, I've read the story about how a, a, a local ordinance would only allow containers to be stacked too high. Well, flexibility provides that to go for high. So there's things like that that are being implemented. And finally, it's pretty clear to me, we've got to get a whole lot more truck drivers. I, I just read that the shortage a couple of years ago was 60,000, now it's 80. So I'm not an expert to say whether taking the age from 21 to 18 for a CDL uh, or the appropriate licensing is right, I don't know. But we darn well better be looking at that because uh, it's not just a ship and freight and waiting in the ports, it's a truck to get it out of the ports. So it's all the above and we gotta bring all that together with a comprehensive strategy. I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> and again, I mean, that is the topic as I travel, as I travel the state and visit with my fellow farmers. So. Yeah. I'll tell you, NASDA is fully engaged with that. You can imagine every commodity item for ag is involved, but we have a unique spot because many of our secretaries and commissioners are very deeply involved in their ports. Derek Sanderson from the state of Washington leads our trade committee. You better believe he is focused on the port in Tacoma and the ports up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, uh, you know, the, the very good commissioner, Gary Black in, uh, in Georgia, although yes. very focused on the possible election, he knows the folks in Savannah very well, the number one container uh, port in the nation. And the list goes on. Mike Strain is the commissioner in New Orleans. What a character he is. He is very doggone well-focused yes. in New Orleans. And so there is a role, and we are engaged in all of that. May even have a letter coming out in a week or two that might perhaps lend some support. So uh, we're with all the others, but we have and are playing for our unique strengths and minimizing the weaknesses as best we can. Well, thank you for, for that update and what you all are doing. Now, let, let, let's maybe end on a note of encouragement aimed at our young people. We just wrapped up uh, in-person National FFA Convention. I can say very proudly that as a state, uh, our members did really, really well uh, in the competitions. But, you know, I, I re read in your bio, you're a former state FFA officer, as am I. Uh, also former member of 4-H. My wife is our co-leader of our local 4-H club. Good for you. Good for her. So it's uh, So I'd love to hear your thoughts. You, you've seen a lot and clearly 4-H and FFA were a springboard 
for you and for all of us. They're really eye-opening in terms of the skills that are gained. So, you know, getting coming out of convention, obviously in your home state, just just what words of encouragement do you want to offer to our young people? Sure. Well, it's pretty simple. And I've said this many times, not just because you've asked it here. Save for my studying on all the uh, the nuances of chi, ch, uh, ch, uh, trade with China during phase one, all the skills of meeting room management, knowing when to hold them, when to fold them, when to be nice, when to be firm, when to scoot the chair back, when to be a little angry, I learned largely in 4-H and FFA. And, uh, and a lot of that comes, you know, from the, the, the founding that, uh, that I also enjoyed when we went to that great Kansas City uh, Convention Center and, and Exhibition Hall to the convention. And by the way, I did not steal it to Indiana. Louisville took it. So you can go talk you to me right. about that problem, okay? <laughs> You're right. You are right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll also say, though, that you have landed one of the finest uh, additional groups, too. I had dinner with the leadership of AFA located there, and um, what an outstanding group that is for the collegiate-oriented people and whatever else they become. So I cannot tell you how many questions I got from so many countries asking about this 4-H and FFA group. They were less familiar with AFA. And you're so proud to talk to them about it because it's the, it's the bedrock of so much of the leadership, whether it's policy, farming, agronomy, sales, R&D, you name it. So yes, I'm an enormous fan. And I just tell people that uh, uh, if, if they're a 4-H or FFA member, they need to put it on the resume for life because it's an automatic ticket for another interview. It gets you the second or third round at minimum. I'll also leave on one other positive note that's more trade related. You know, we could wring our hands and, and wish that things were so much better, but I, I will say there's a mega trend that still weighs very much in our favor. If you believe in climate change, which means you can't just go take all the, uh, the land of the, of the globe and put it under the, under the plow or the field cultivator or whatever your form of tillage might be, it means you got to produce more on the lands that are meant for and that God provided for to produce food. And we've got to almost double food production between now and 2050. Uh, that means doubling all the food since mankind was founded to today. We've got to double that. And we've proven Malthus wrong time and time and time again through technology. So I will just say that to feed a hungry world, we're going to have to produce more and more food. And the last time I checked, the U.S. of A. is pretty doggone good at making a quality and a safe food supply. And the world knows it. I never had any doubts about the quality and in some cases, the quantity of our food supply. And if we can play to that strength, I think we'll, we'll get trade figured out over time through WTO and other things. And that mega trend cannot be forgotten because we need to leave these youth with hope that they do have an occupation, whether they come to farm or work for Farm Bureau or whatever they do, there's a, there's a, a happy and productive and rewarding life in this world of food and agriculture. Well, I, you know, I appreciate that. You know, in a sense, we never really truly take off that blue and gold jacket. And, That's right. And, and, you know, for me, one of the most interesting places that blue and gold jacket took me was to Turkmenistan. In, really? It, yes. In the spring, it was March of 2002. 
and a professor from then Southwest Missouri State University and I were sponsored by Winrock International oh, to travel the country of Turkmenistan and conduct a feasibility study of what it would take to implement a program like FFA there at the collegiate level. And never, as I as I still interact with youth, I've always been able to say that when I first put that jacket on my freshman year, I I never had any idea that it would literally take me halfway around the world. And it was such a, a unique experience. And that's a great thing about ag education. And my wife, by the way, is an ag educator as well. She uh, she taught in the classroom for 12 years. So. Well, you married up if you got a, somebody that's leading an FFA chapter and a 4-H club. Way, way to go. That's great. Well, and to brag on her once more, she uh, was our state star farmer uh, during her time. And you know what a big deal that is. Uh, so, so yes, I, I definitely married up. I married a Jersey queen, and I couldn't be more proud of uh, her. <laughs> uh and you know really just ag education just holds such a special place in all of our hearts and you well, know I'll, I'll share one more thing with you when, when i uh was in i think it was an ffa i was not yet a state officer and i was invited to what was called in indiana a youth power conference this is when the groups that might be old today but ffa and fha future homemakers office education association Vocational Industrial Clubs of America, VICA, DECA, a couple others I'm not thinking of. We all gathered together. And this was uh, in a Marriott just outside of Indianapolis. And it was none other than Indiana Farm Bureau, which is the group I grew up with that, uh, that sponsored that. And that was the first time I really came into contact with people outside of my world of ag. I mean, I grew up in a community where you had people that worked in other places, but I mean, in youth, my age, looking to grow, wanting to be leaders. And it was Farm Bureau that sponsored that. And so to this day, uh, I'm, I'm forever debted to the Farm Bureau organization. I mean, they brought my grandparents together. They brought my parents together. So and they brought my wife's parents together. So maybe you guys should be matchmakers as well. Well, <laughs> back in the day, there were a number of county Farm Bureau leaders that tried to set me up and get me married off as well. <laughs> so. We are, uh, Farm Bureau uh, is a special place uh, because of the people that make up this organization. You should be, you should know, and Blake will appreciate this, that when you go into public service, as I did, uh, you have to give up a lot. You have to sever a lot of things. You have to get rid of stocks. And uh, the one thing that I fought hardest for, two things, really. I had to give up my Farm Bureau membership. Like, that was going to create some large bias in my work, but I... I fought hard. It was the last one. And then I wanted to stay involved with the FFA National Convention Program, even though I was not going to be there and as active. But uh, ethics says you have to cut all that and cut aside for a few years. But we're fortunately, we're back. Uh, we're back into both. But uh, I'll never forget fighting hard to hang on to those two uh, relationships for a while. Well, that speaks volumes about you, Ted. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this edition of Digging In, our podcast. It truly is. It's, it's an honor to be able to visit with you and share some fun stories back to the 4-H and FFA days. And more importantly, you know, talk about the issues that are at hand. And certainly we know NASA's in good hands. Just thank you for what you do advocating for not just state departments of agriculture, but ultimately 
the farm and ranch families that are being served by those who are in public service, trying to do the good work of helping protect and promote our food supply. Well, thank you very much. You're very kind and right back at you. I feel the same way about you all in, in Missouri. So all the best to you and your organization. Well, thank you, Ted. Stay in touch. We'll do.